this episode, a presidential curse manifests as a pretzel, Ulysses S. Grant comes up too much, and Rob doesn't know how much a shilling is worth. Welcome to Fax Machine. there. My name is Noah, and I'm here alongside my co-hosts Emily. Hey. And Rob. Hey there. In this episode, our theme is U.S. presidents, self-styled leaders of the free world and holders of one of the world's most dangerous occupations. The three of us will take turns sharing and discussing some fascinating POTUS facts, and then we'll wrap things up with a pub-style trivia quiz loosely inspired by the theme. But before we get started, I just want to make sure everybody out there knows about our live show! April 29th, 9pm at Caveat on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. We are going to have an awesome show. Our theme is going to be the Periodic Table of Elements. So we're going to have a great time talking all about the stories, just sort of like behind the elements discovery, all the crazy awesome people who are surrounded those discoveries, as well as some really cool facts just about the building blocks of our universe. So it's going to be a great time. We're going to be in our element (laughs) (laughs) it's just a hint of what's ahead (laughs) don't scare them away now we still have to sell tickets dude (laughs) but please buy the tickets yes that too So, yes, you still can get tickets. There are definitely a few left. If you check faxmachinepodcast.com, you should still be able to get them, but get them soon, as well as on our social media accounts, Instagram and Twitter in the bio. So go get them while they're still there, and we hope to see you on April 29th at 9 p.m. at Caveat on the Lower East Side of New York. And with that, here's Emily with our first fact. This week I learned that William Henry Harrison, despite an exceptionally short term in office, might have the most lasting presidential legacy of all, thanks to a legendary curse, of which he was the first victim. So the curse at hand for this episode, uh, it goes by many names. The curse of Tippecanoe, Tecumseh's curse, the zero-year or 20-year curse, and they all allude to various elements of the curse as well as the events that gave rise to it. So you guys have probably heard the term tip canoe uh, through the phrase tip canoe in Tyler 2, which mm. we've all learned in elementary school and we'll all carry in our minds until we die, probably. But or, or forget I, immediately. Yeah, I couldn't tell you what it meant. <laughs> well, exactly. But that's all you know. It's that, the mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell, and Eli Whitney invented the cotton gin. But yeah, so tip canoe was a nickname uh, that was adopted by William Henry Harrison, hence the political slogan, after he led American forces against those of Tecumseh's Confederacy at the Battle of Tip Canoe in 1811. So Tecumseh's Confederacy was well, a confederation, of Native American tribes around the Great Lakes that formed to sort of unite them against the encroaching American settlers. By 1811, the most influential members of the Confederacy were two Shawnee brothers, Tecumseh, its leader and namesake, and Tenskwatawa, better known as the Prophet. Mm. So he was the spiritual leader, one might say, of the Confederacy. Uh, He was a proponent of embracing tribal traditions and rejecting European influences, and he was the Prophet because he had these visions and then teaching associated with them um, that amassed him a following known as the Purification Movement. And around this following uh, grew a community that became known as Prophetstown, named after him, the Prophet. (laughs) So interesting sort of intro to the story is that his identity as a prophet uh, was actually cemented accidentally by William Henry Harrison because while he was the governor of Indiana Territory seeking to implement his really innovative and groundbreaking policy that can be summarized as stealing land from Native Americans, uh, he found himself at odds with Tecumseh and Tenskwatawa and at one point insisted that Tenskwatawa, in quotes, caused the sun to stand still, the moon to alter its course, the rivers to cease to flow, or the dead to rise from their graves, end quote, in order to prove his prophetic abilities. Tenskwatawa, likely deciding against the inconvenient results of drying up all the rivers or raising the dead, <laughs> accepted the challenge and accurately predicted a solar eclipse in the summer of 1806. Tenskwatawa 1, Harrison 0. So fast forwarding to the Battle of Tippecanoe. Um, so Harrison leads his army to Prophetstown uh, on November 6th, where Tenskwato was running the show since his brother Tecumseh was away recruiting reinforcements for a military action that he wanted to start against the U.S. Um, so it was supposed to be a meeting to negotiate a peace treaty and ended up being a two-hour battle that resulted in about 70 deaths on both sides, the thorough destruction of Prophetstown, and... 
the campaign slogan, Tippecanoe and Tyler II. After Tecumseh's death in 1813, so a few years down the line, in the Battle of the Thames, also by Harrison's forces, Tenskwatawa issued a foreboding, but at this point pretty justified, prophecy. So, paraphrased, Harrison may win next year. If he does, he shall not finish his term. He will die in office. And after him, every great chief chosen every 20 years thereafter will die. He said that? He did. He said it. He did it. That's pretty wild. So, as we all know, Harrison proved him right again by dying 33 days into his presidency after giving the longest inauguration speech in history, 90 minutes, talk about all talk and no action. (laughs) And and although at the time, actually, as a fun side note, well, my definition of fun, I guess, is weird here. uh, It was thought at the time that he died of pneumonia, but actually now it's thought that he died of typhoid thanks to D.C.'s lack of sewer system. And that also made successive presidents sick as well. For those keeping track at home, Tenskwatawa too. Harrison, still zero, forever, because he's dead. Because <laughs> he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> so before I run down the list of additional victims of this curse, let's just review the terms really quick. Every president elected in 20-year increments after William Henry Harrison's election in 1840 will die in office. Got it? Got it. Check. All right. Off we go. 1860, Lincoln. Off to a good yep, start. dead. 1880, James Garfield, assassinated by Charles Guiteau in the first year of his presidency. Mm, dead. 1900, William McKinley, elected in his second term in 1900. The curse didn't specify terms, just mm. years, so it still counts. He was assassinated by Leon... Oh, Kozlov. Thank you. You know what? Can I, can I just comment for a minute? So I'm notoriously terrible at pronouncing things, but me being me, like this note just has, my script rather, just has his name and then in parentheses, lol, good luck with that because it cast <laughs> me's an asshole apparently. Cool. Thank you, Rob. Uh, 1920, Warren G. Harding, ever the trendsetter, he died of a heart attack. He was not assassinated three years into his presidency. So, so the curse still lives, but it's changing up its repertoire. So 1940, FDR. He was elected to his third term that year and died of a cerebral hemorrhage in 1941. Uh, worth noting, too, that in between the 1920-1940 presidential deaths, Ripley's Believe It or Not, which at the time was a newspaper feature, uh, ran a few stories about this curse and put it into the public eye. So finally, somebody started noticing that this was happening. <laughs> uh, 1960, JFK. I don't have any jokes for that. I I love him so much. Uh, 1980. uh, So people by the 1980 election were, you know, aware of the curse and actually buzzing about it and saying like, oh, who's going to win this election and what's going to happen to them? Um, And somebody even asked Jimmy Carter about it at a campaign stop. And he said, I'm not afraid. Uh, If I knew it was going to happen, I would go ahead and be president and do the best I could till the last day I could, which is such a Jimmy Carter thing to say. And I love it. But anyways. But he lost. He lost to Reagan, who survived an assassination attempt by John Hinckley Jr. and made it all the way through. So I have a few potential explanations for this. First one, after over 100 years in the job, the curse is starting to phone it in. Another possible explanation is that the curse was overcome by modern medicine, like many diseases that were once thought to be curses. On that note, please vaccinate. And last explanation could be the curse met its match with Nancy Reagan's astrologer, Joan Quigley, whom she hired afterwards, after the assassination attempt, to predict and spare her husband from any future such attempts on his life. Or maybe when the curse tried to take him out the first time, Mercury was in retrograde, and we all know that nothing works out when Mercury is in retrograde. (laughs) I love, do you guys know the quote when afterwards an interviewer asked Reagan, what happened that day? And he says, I forgot to duck. So fast forwarding another 20 years, uh, we have George W., who also made it through and is still kicking, despite two assassination attempts, one in 2005 by Vladimir Arutunian with a grenade, and another even more nefarious one in 2002 by a wayward pretzel. Yeah, it's always I mean, the ones you suspect. <laughs> so, so that's that's to me that's where it all breaks down. I mean, that wasn't a real assassination attempt. Like basically, what happened was the guy threw a grenade that he threw it in like a cloth. The cloth mm-hmm. stopped the pin from like whatever from coming out. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't even Bush didn't even know about it until after the event when he was told. Mm-hmm. So like you know the closest Bush ever got to being assassinated was when that guy threw a shoe at him. <laughs> I forgot one. <laughs> Although I thought it was super weird that I had no idea. Like, I read about that grenade assassination attempt for the first time researching this episode. Like, it was not a thing. Yeah, same. Yeah. Yeah, it was not really publicized. Yeah, same here. 
so to me, the biggest surprise that I felt about this fact, at least, was that I hadn't already heard of it. Um, and then I realized it's probably because we, uh, luckily, not to give the wrong impression, haven't had a president die in office since JFK's assassination in 1963. Uh, whereas the public was waiting, as I mentioned before, with bated breath for the potential demise that might befall the winner of the 1980 election, we've had a lot of time and a few failed attempts or assassination attempts to forget about it. Um, though... On that note, I will mention that the election year that the curse should supposedly strike next is... 2020. Yeah, so... Anyways, final tally. Tensquato a seven, America zero. I will say, I was shocked to learn... Like, just like I was shocked to learn George W. Bush had an assassination attempt. Um, George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton were both subject to assassination attempts. Um, And it's actually um, the Sunday, two days ago, when this episode drops... um, it was the 25th anniversary of George H.W. Bush's uh, failed assassination attempt. Um, he was at a Kuwait university and a car crossed the border full of explosives. And it was like going to the place where he was and it got caught at the border. Wow. Um, so that one was, again, like not super close, but like a near miss. Um, and I like this one about Bill Clinton, which is um, a man named Martin Duran, uh, Francisco Martin Duran opened fire on the White House, um, shooting at men in dark suits, hoping one was the president, and he was tackled by tourists outside. Wow. Um, Bill Clinton was inside the White House watching football. Watching people get tackled. Yeah. Wow. Meta. He could have just looked outside. (laughs) (laughs) Do you guys have any more on um, curses? Well, I have, um, speaking of U.S. presidents, uh, we could talk now for no particular reason about interesting patterns in Russian leaders. Um, Have you heard of the bald Harry rules? No. No? <laughs> but it sounds okay. it looks like from your faces you don't want to hear about it either. Um, Cautiously intrigued. Basically <laughs> basically there's this uh basically everywhere I read about it, it said it was just it was described as like a joke in Russian politics that uh going back uh, as early as eighteen twenty five, Russian leaders have alternated between those who are bald or balding and those who have full heads of hair. Um, and the the joke kind of is it must be this way. So um, it started basically with Nicholas the first czar uh, who was balding was succeeded by his son Alexander the second who had a full head of hair, uh, and Alexander the second was succeeded by Alexander the third who was balding and he was succeeded by Nicholas the second who was hairy, etc. etc. Russian Revolution, Lenin balding, Stalin hairy, yada yada yada. Fall of the Soviet Union, Putin balding, Medvedev hairy. Finally Putin again, still balding. So um, it is held up to this point. And so the big question is like after Putin, if there ever will be an after Putin, um, the question is, will it continue? There's another one, uh, another pattern in Russia, interestingly, that existed from uh, at at least 1682 to 1801, when men and women alternated on the Russian throne without fail. So that was Peter the Great, Catherine, Peter, Anna, Ivan, Elizabeth, Peter, Catherine, and then Paul, and then Emperor Paul changed the rules of succession uh, so that only men could rule, and that put an end to that, which I feel like is really cheating. It mm. really is. They had a good so thing many going. Ways. Yeah. <laughs> so I have one thing on Native American curses. I was just looking through a list of them. There, there are a lot of really interesting ones, but this one, this one has a nice tie-in to us because um, it was called the Curse of Brunswick Springs, Vermont. And uh, this one, Brunswick Springs, Vermont, had a, a storied history because it has this kind of unique underground fountainhead. Um, and so it was actually featured in 1984 by Ripley's Believe It or Not. And they called Brunswick Springs the eighth wonder of the world. Uh, from a single underwater fountainhead, there are six separate springs, they claim. And it was said for a long time, each had a different mineral enrichment. Hmm. Iron, calcium, magnesium, wow. sulfur, bromide, and arsenic. Go to our live show on the periodic table. <laughs> well, well, just, yes, please come to our live show all about the periodic table, April 29th, 9 p.m. at Caveat on Lower East Side of Manhattan. But also, there was a spring with arsenic in it. Yeah, so this was the claim. It was like six like separate spouts of water coming out of this underground spring. And the, the Abenaki Indians believed that the springs had um, sacred healing powers. And so the correct... Not if you're drinking out of the arsenic ones. <laughs> so they said the correct combination was really important, but you could go there and you would feel better. And people to this day ascribe medical, uh, like, miracles to going to this water. Some guys said, like, oh, I had, like, arthritis and I feel better. Oh, I, like, recovered from all these diseases. Um, but people who have now tested the water say that all six springs are exactly the same, and they're just all enriched <laughs> in sulfur dioxide. Oh, <laughs> Um, but okay. so the curse actually has nothing to do with the chemical composition. Uh, it dates back to when a soldier was wounded in the French and Indian War, and one of his uh, Abenaki companions brought him back to the spring so he could heal. And he did actually recover, and recovered quite well, and he came back to bottle the water and sell it as miracle water. Um, the Abenaki tribe objected to any profit coming from sacred water, 
and it led to a fight. And in that fight, that soldier not only killed an Abenaki man, but also that man's baby. What a dick. Yeah. So this is clearly terrible and, and the man's fault. And so it was the baby's mother who put a curse on anyone who tried to profit from the spring. Um, which did not deter four businessmen from building a hotel there in 1860, which lasted for a little while until in the 1890s, it burned to the ground. So they built a second hotel, which collapsed into the river. And then they rebuilt the hotel, which burned during construction. And as they finished it, it burned again. Good. So <laughs> Rightly so. Four fails there. Um, and then the land became kind of put aside for the Civilian Conservation Corps, and now it is a protected land so that no one can go in uh, and take the water or take the land for any purpose. So a pretty pretty potent curse, I would say, must be the arsenic. <laughs> <laughs> this week I learned Grant's Tomb, the presidential landmark on the Upper West Side, which cost a modern $27 million in 2018 currency, was crowdfunded. So that means, basically, this $27 million landmark, people like... Pitched in to make it happen. Nice. Yeah. Awesome. So I'll say first the land itself was donated by the city. Um, So this all has to do with President Ulysses S. Grant, um, Civil War hero. At the time of his death in 1885, he moved to New York City. He was a resident of New York. He had a residence upstate New York as well. Um, After two terms, he conducted an impressive world tour. He traveled all around the world. Um, He came back. He considered running for a third term, which at the time was still fairly unprecedented, and a lot of people wanted him to do it. Uh, All this is to say... People liked him. He was a very popular ex-president. So he, he was well-loved at the time uh, after his presidency. Um, for him, uh, actually, unfortunately, the last major venture of his life financially was he invested in his son's bank, uh, which his son founded with a crooked business partner. And what they did was they backed multiple loans with the same collateral, which essentially led them to uh, default. Uh, and he lost approximately $250,000 back then money. Wow. So Grant lost... $250,000, and a lot of it was actually a loan he had taken out from the Vanderbilt family because he was trying to support his son's business, and he was confident he would get it back. Um, so this is really kind of tragic for Grant. Um, the Vanderbilt family, on their part, they took the deed to Grant's house as return, but let him live in it. They said, okay, wow. we'll, we'll take this, but you keep that, and we're even. Um, so kind of a, a nice move on their part. But so the public had a lot of pity for Grant. They kind of saw this public affair play out really against him. He was completely unwitting of the fact that his son was involved in this crooked business. Uh, It's unclear how much his son knew. But so at the time of his death, um, he was beloved and pitied. Um, And so what happened was as he was dying, he was writing his memoirs, basically his autobiography. And he got a a book deal that would have given him 10% of the royalties to his family. And his friend, Mark Twain, said, nah and he made his own book deal. <laughs> That's what he said. Exact quote. <laughs> he was like, no, not my friend. <laughs> Mark Twain, famously pretty good with words. <laughs> but he put a big old no. He was on off that. the clock, you know? He only has so much. <laughs> Mark Twain was just like, mm-mm. <laughs> Um, but Twain made a, a, a separate book deal in which 75% of the royalties from the memoir went to the Grant family, um, which in many ways supported... Grant's widow for years. Um, This also, I should say, uh, it set the precedent for how presidents could earn a living after serving. This was the first presidential autobiography. Oh, wow, yeah. Um, And it didn't hurt that it was just an absolute critical success. Um, It it was praised for being insightful, for talking about his service and his time in the war, Uh, but also it was just, it was credited as being really well-written. He had a mastery of prose in the English language, uh, and so it was a good book. And it sold really, really well. Twain also had a whole thing where veterans went around the country with leather-bound editions, like selling it for hundreds of dollars. Oh, like, wow. Yeah, uh, in modern currency, hundreds of dollars each. So it, it was a commercial and critical success. Uh, and this helped the Grant family a lot. But all of this made Grant very popular at the time of his death. And so he had indicated to his wife he wanted to be buried with her, uh, which means that they could not be buried in Arlington National Cemetery together, um, as women were not permitted at the time. So this led to a question of where will we bury President Grant? Um, They had considered this as a family, and they had sort of decided New York City would be a good place. They lived there. They liked it a lot. They thought Riverside Park was beautiful. And so upon his death, the mayor offered up the land for their tomb, for his tomb, I should say, to be created. Um, And all he needed was approximately a million (laughs) dollars. But he was like, yeah, let's do it. And so... That's all I ever need. Yeah, right? I'm just $1 million away from making it. 
<laughs> but so a couple of things started. They they started to crowdfund for the tomb, and they also had to have a design competition for who would be the architect. So just a few years before, in 1881, and this was 1885 when Grant died, in 1881, uh, President Garfield was assassinated, as we mentioned. Um, and this led to a, a big outpouring of support and a strong drive for the donations for his mausoleum in Cleveland, Ohio. So the Garfield Memorial was designed by a Hartford architect, and it was America's first great mausoleum. So it had a 180-foot-high Romanesque turret, mosaics, bas-relief, and a heroic statue of Garfield out in front. Um, however, the Garfield Trust that had the competition uh, set aside $1,000 for the winner, which was not really a lot, um, considering they were going to be the architect of a major presidential monument. So Outrage, the journal American Architect and Building News, called on, quote, gravestone manufacturers, apprentices, and kindergarten pupils, asking them to compete, <laughs> declaring that the money would reimburse for, quote, the time needed to stick a few ready-made emblems onto a stock modeler's figure around a block in a way as to pass muster among the jury of politicians and financiers. Wow. I'm sorry, who did they call upon again? Um, it was gravestone manufacturers, apprentices. Oh, sorry, that's, uh, there's no comma there. That's gravestone, gravestone manufacturers, apprentices. Yeah, the apprentices of gravestone manufacturers. Yes. Yeah. And kindergarten pupils. Yeah, one of those things is not like the others. <laughs> well, child labor laws weren't the same, so they actually yeah, were exactly they probably the same. were. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so they, architects were not pleased with this really, really low honorarium for designing a presidential tomb. So the Grant Trust had these considerations in mind. They offered more money. Um, I had trouble finding out exactly how much they awarded because um, the design competition had sixty-five entries of which they settled on five winners, which means that the pool was split among those five in some way, but no one was actually chosen to be the final design. So basically they had a competition. They're like, all right, you guys win, but we didn't like any of them. <laughs> um, and so then they had to like go back and they did what they called an invited competition where they asked like somewhat famous architects to submit designs um, and they would be paid another amount of money. So all of this was kind of putting them in a little bit of a, a, a bad situation financially. Um, they, land, uh, they landed on John Hemingway Duncan, um, he had designed a few other things around the United States at this point, and Duncan's design juxtaposed a lot of elements from European and Mediterranean works, um, kind of from all over, like the Mediterranean coast, in what seemed to be at the time an illogical, but like ultimately a very pleasing aesthetic form. And so the tomb is still the largest mausoleum in the United States, uh, and it was completed within 10 years of the president's death, but it actually took a very long time for them to build the tomb, uh, and he stayed in a temporary kind of tomb or a temporary monument for most of that time. Um, to raise the money, the committee sent letters out to prominent New Yorkers, and they asked them to raise money. A few big companies pitched in. One coal company promised to give a certain number, of, a certain amount of money for every uh, pound of coal that they sold. But so while New Yorkers were very generous, and they, they got to about half of the million dollars they needed, um, one Indiana newspaper criticized the whole thing, encouraging Americans not to donate, saying, quote, we have not a cent for New York in the undertaking, and we would advise that not a dollar of help be sent to the millionaire city from the state of Indiana. If the billions of New York are not sufficient to embellish the city, let the remains be placed in Washington or some other American city. So That's in fair. Yeah, yeah, kind of is. Indiana, <laughs> not, not too keen on uh, crowdfunding for a presidential monument. Um, yeah, so it was not at this point. Like, this is, again, this went on for about 10 years, raising funds, changing designs, paying people who didn't do anything. Um, classic New York bureaucracy, I guess. But people started to get pretty mad about it. Um, but they built the monument. It was beautiful. It finally opened. Um, and for a while, it stayed in uh, kind of private ownership. But eventually, um, they could no longer fund the people to take care of it, the curators. So it fell under the auspices of the National Department of Parks. Um, and in 1984, the New York Times wrote about how it was a monument to neglect. Basically talking about the how it was subject to incredible vandalism. There were no full-time employees there. And the author of the New York Times piece writes this. For reference, 200 full-time employees are assigned to Yellowstone Park, which is admittedly much larger. The irony is the man who created the first national park in the world in 1872, which was Yellowstone National Park, was none other than President Ulysses S. Grant. Fortunately for us, um, Grant's tomb is much in much better condition now. And actually, it's interesting. I work about three blocks away from there most days, so I can go there for lunch if I feel like it. It's a beautiful condition. Um, they have all the plaques up to date with the history and the upkeep of it. Uh, but it's just a lovely, lovely location. And I can imagine that that part of Riverside Drive hasn't changed too much since the 1880s, uh, with just like trees looking down on the river. Like probably the biggest difference is just cars kind of humming along on uh, the West Side Highway. But otherwise, you can definitely imagine yourself standing there like Grant did years ago, 
looking out into New Jersey and saying, I'm glad I'm not there. <laughs> I don't have to imagine that. Like, anytime I want. <laughs> New York City, baby! <laughs> So speaking, actually, of publicly funded monumental projects uh, in New York specifically, uh, when it came to the Statue of Liberty, around the same time as the fundraising for Grant's memorial, uh, New Yorkers were all about that base, specifically the base of the <laughs> statue. The <laughs> okay. You cracked me up. Oh, I do try. I do try. So... <laughs> So to give a little bit of background on the Statue of Liberty and how it came to be. Um, so it was the brainchild of two idealistic artistic Frenchmen, uh, law professor and politician Edouard René de Laboulet. Something like that. Mm-hmm. Sounds French. Uh, yeah, sure. When you, when you were saying it was a French person, I thought it was la professeur. <laughs> la professeur <laughs> Laboulet. The professor of law. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he was, so it works. Um, And uh, so he's the one who had the idea to raise a monument uh, in honor of both U.S. and French independence, kind of timed with roughly the 100-year anniversary of Bastille Day and the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, And the other person was sculptor Frédéric Auguste Bertoldi, who was inspired by La and went and actually built the thing. Um, So it was meant to be a diplomatic gift from France uh, and also to spur collaboration between the two nations uh, through its ideological and its literal foundations, um, in particular through the way that it was funded. Um, So once the feasibility of the project was established, and actually some confidence towards it came from Ulysses S. Grant, uh, whom Bartleby met when he was visiting the U.S. uh, in 1870 to kind of see where the statue could go and if anybody even wanted to have it here. It was officially announced in 1875 uh, with an agreement that France would raise funds for the statue itself uh, through French crowdfunding carried out uh, under the Franco-American Union, while the U.S. would pay for the pedestal. So years pass, the French hold up their part of the bargain uh, regarding fundraising, and Bartholdi builds the statue in various pieces and exhibits them all over in world fairs. Uh, Meanwhile, the U.S. was not making so good on their promise. So a bunch of fundraising committees found the statue to be a surprisingly hard sell, um, and multiple motions to allocate government funding to the project kept getting shot down. Um, And this was in part due to people still reeling from the Panic of 1873, which is a financial crisis that happened fairly recently. And there was also a bit of xenophobia at play as well in that a Frenchman was building a statue that would become an icon of America. Um, So as a consequence of this, other cities like Boston and Philadelphia actually offered to kick in some money to fund it themselves on the stipulation that the statue be relocated to their cities. And I have to say, I love Boston, but I've seen what happens to public like works whenever a sports team wins yeah. or loses. That would have been disastrous. Also, looking at you too, Philly. Same thing. So, <laughs> yeah. But as the New York Times at the time said, no true patriot can countenance any such expenditures for bronze females in the present state of our finances. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Which oh, is just God. a ridiculous phrase. Okay. Also, she's copper. <laughs> Oh yeah, because <laughs> she's green. That's right. Yeah. Fake news, New York oh, Times. <laughs> So, as 1885 neared, uh, along with the projected arrival of the statue, um, which was basically shipped over in pieces with what I can only assume are IKEA-esque instructions, uh, <laughs> things were looking pretty grim. And by grim, I mean they were short a hundred thousand dollars, which by today's standards was two point three million dollars to build this pedestal. Wow. So, onto this scene entered Joseph Pulitzer familiar name, uh, who is himself a 19th century embodiment of the hopeful immigrant turned American dream story. Um, Basically, his life story includes being a boxcar hopper who at one point made ends meet by selling his handkerchief for 75 cents. And then, as we better know him, uh, ended up becoming a New York newspaper magnate, congressman, and now the namesake of the most prestigious award in journalism. So he announced on the front page of his newspaper, The New York World, uh, a drive to raise the leftover $100,000 and to print the names of every donor, no matter the size of their contribution in the paper. And in five months, he met his goal from 160,000 donors with three quarters of those donations being less than a dollar. So actually, I would say, too, this isn't just crowdfunding. It's also kind of grassroots crowdfunding, too. Like, it's a lot of smaller donors, which... Kind of makes it an even nicer story. Oh, yeah. And I'll say, too, that uh, from what he published in his newspaper, at least, these donors came from all walks of life, uh, which he drew up on by publishing some of their notes or by publishing some of the notes they sent in with their donations. So uh, just to give kind of an example of what was in the newspaper, um, one donation was sent in by, in quotes, a young girl alone in the world who donated 60 cents, the result of self-denial. One donor gave five cents as a poor office boy's might towards the pedestal fund. Um, A group of children... (laughs) Uh, sent a dollar 
uh, together as money we saved to go to the circus with. Um, oh. And another dollar was given by a lonely and very aged woman, which... <laughs> was this what he printed in the paper? <laughs> yeah, just people sending in and being like, I'm donating this, like, you know, as this person and... Well, the pedestal you, for what America. I also kind of like about the kids who send in their circus money is that they eventually got to see a giant woman. That's true. <laughs> Talk about a sideshow, I guess. That's the long game. <laughs> <laughs> they knew what they were doing. Um, but yeah, so he succeeded. The pedestal is built. The Statue of Liberty is built. And now it's in the harbor, not too far from here. Hooray! Yeah. Yay! I like the idea of like robocalling or like spam emailing for this kind of thing. And it's like... <laughs> Wait a minute, I've got a telegram. Your PIN number is compromised. Stop. You must send me your information. Stop. I'm a Nigerian prince. Stop. So this week I learned Ulysses S. Grant was arrested for speeding in the only known instance of a sitting president being arrested. Okay, wait. I missed the memo. Is this a president's episode or a Grant episode? It's a, it's a president's <laughs> episode. Okay, I'm sorry. I did not know that Rob's fact is about Ulysses S. Grant. And Fine. so I also found a fun fact about Ulysses S. Grant. The other fact I was going to go with was President Lincoln pardoned a guy for attempted bestiality. But I thought, hey, this is a family <laughs> pod. So I'll go with speeding. Since when? <laughs> Fair point. <laughs> You'll hear about that in the next episode. Uh, I wasn't asking for that. Okay, carry on. <laughs> anyway, so Ulysses S. Grant, the only president ever to be arrested while he was president. So uh, Ulysses S. Grant, as we've heard, was seemingly a great guy that a lot of people really wanted to donate lots of money to his causes. Um, but I'm going to tell you a little bit about the darker side of Ulysses S. Grant. He was a speed demon. Ooh. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> so president ulysses s grant was a skilled equestrian uh who apparently had a talent for taming allegedly untamable horses so he was famous for like walking right up to the horse that like everyone's like no this horse will never be rideable you'll never get this horse to be useful for anything other than just meat probably i don't know um and he would walk up to it and like a horse whisper just kind of be like I am the captain now. He was <laughs> just one of those kind of situations. Uh, and it would just be like, dope, ride me. Um, and then during his time at West Point, Grant's riding prowess was especially impressive. And so he, there was a classmate of his and actually a future Confederate general and you know opponent on the battlefield, James Longstreet, who wrote of him, quote, in horsemanship, he was noted as the most proficient in the academy. In fact, rider and horse held together like the fabled centaur. <laughs> Wow. Oh. Yeah, right? <laughs> right? That's okay. Right? okay. That's oh. elegant to describe. Is it? Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> his, so also, his son Frederick wrote that he, quote, preferred to ride the most unmanageable mount, the largest and most powerful one. Oftentimes, I saw him ride a beast that none had approached. So basically, he has this lifelong love of horses, and apparently he's just really, really good with them. Um but he wasn't exactly known for his safety. Actually, in 1866, his wife, Julia, wrote to him concerned about newspaper reports that claimed that during a carriage tour of Central Park in New York with other political dignitaries, he had seized the reins from New York financier Leonard Jerome, challenged the driver of the second carriage to a race, and then won. So <laughs> I went through, I found this like collection of his personal letters, and in his reply, he reassured her that the story was, quote, Almost without foundation. <laughs> Which he, he goes on to explain, quote, Mr. Jerome took me from the hotel to Manhattanville above Central Park, and when we got into the park, he asked me to drive, which I did. But there was no fast driving nor talk of it. Kisses to you and the children. <laughs> I'm just like, nice deflection, dude. <laughs> um, and also, just as a matter of interest, actually, in the next letter he sent Julia, just a couple days later, he complains about having to sit through then-President Andrew Johnson's boring stump speech. And he says, quote, I have never been so tired of anything before as I have been with the political stump speeches of Mr. Johnson. I look upon them as a national disgrace. <laughs> oh, <Yeah>. oh, damn. <laughs> damn, Grant. 
Um, but anyway, we don't know whether he was telling the truth, but we do know that he was notorious for this kind of behavior, and he wasn't alone. In fact, in 1872, the D.C. police received numerous complaints about speeding carriages. Eventually, a mother and her six-year-old child were run over and very badly injured. And so in response to this, the D.C. police sent out an officer to investigate. That officer was William H. West, who actually was a former slave who fought in the Civil War and who was one of the only two African-American D.C. police officers at the time. So while Officer West was interviewing witnesses to that earlier crash, he saw none other than Ulysses S. Grant, President of the United States, rocketing past the corner of M and 13th Street at, quote, a furious pace. (laughs) West signaled for the president to stop which was easier said than done, apparently, since Grant was, quote, driving a pair of fast steppers. (laughs) 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 This is a lot of really... Sounds like a new sneaker rollout. Yeah, it's a lot of, like, really... fast steppers? Yeah, it's sick. Yeah, that's dope. (laughs) Nice kicks. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, this is just going to quote a lot of old-timey newspaper stuff. Nice. um, Yeah, so he was driving a pair of fast steppers, but he managed to slow down and ask, quote, well, officer, what do you want with me? To which West replied, quote, I want to inform you, Mr. President, that you are violating the law by speeding along this street. Your fast driving, sir, has set the example for a lot of other gentlemen. So according to West, Grant apologized, said it would never happen again, and then went on his way. But would you believe that the very next day, (laughs) Officer William H. West, the hero the District of Columbia deserves, is minding his own business tending to his D.C. street corner when the president of the damn United States of America comes blazing down the street, this time so fast, it took him an entire city block to stop. Oh, my God. (laughs) And according to West, Grant had a huge shit-eating grin on his face, (laughs) quote, like a schoolboy who had been caught in a guilty act by a teacher, and said, quote, do you think, officer, that I was violating the speed laws? (laughs) God. What? <laughs> I do, Mr. President, said West. And then, this is just really badass, quote, I am very sorry, Mr. President, to have to do it, for you are the chief of the nation, and I am nothing but a policeman. <laughs> but duty is duty, sir, and I will have to place you under arrest. To which Grant is reported to have replied, do your duty, my good man. So West books Grant and a couple of his buddies who are riding with him, takes him down to the station, finds him $20, impounds his horses, and makes him walk back to the White House. (laughs) (laughs) So there was this giant debate among the police officers that were at that station, whether or not they could actually press charges against a sitting U.S. president who had not been impeached, which is a question that's come kind of come up recently and that's hey. why this that's why this topic was like sort of dug up from the archives of like the DC sort of historical wow huh. um so they came to the conclusion that they really couldn't decide and they ended up not uh, actually charging him but the rest of the people that were with them they scheduled a trial for the next day so according to the Washington Star, quote, 32 ladies of the most refined character and surroundings voluntarily came into the court and testified against the drivers on whom the judge imposed heavy fines. Interestingly, according to a November 7th, 1925 article in the Washington Post, quote, Grant and West became solid pals after the incident, and in one of their frequent chats, West informed the president that he too was a speed maniac, and that while <laughs> off duty, oh he had God. been arrested more than 20 times for speeding. Wow. West owned a stable of fine horses that at once attracted Grant's admiration and provided for the two men a strong bond of common interest, which I think is a pretty cool thing. So they ended up being friends for the rest of their lives. That's Um, crazy. And so there's some other things about William West. I mean, he's an amazing person, Um, just relevant to this story. uh, So he, he, he was an avid horseman himself. Um, And so, Another thing that was in this article from like 1925 was old timers around Washington yet will remember West's remarkable horse, Dan. (laughs) 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 This animal was so trained that... (laughs) Dan. Um, Back before all the good names were taken. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This animal was so trained that when his master had cornered an offender, he would seize the culprit by the coat with his great front teeth. As a rule, the horse was careful not to catch a man's flesh, but if the offender offered resistance, the great teeth would grasp flesh along with the coating. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Very interesting. 
Um, I will uh, say, like, like uh, ridiculous horse names, like, from horse racing could be its own yeah. fact because they're amazing. They are amazing. <laughs> um, so one I've heard really recently, this is incredible, is uh, Wayne Rooney, like an English soccer player, mm-hmm. um, okay. once tried to get a horse approved by whatever, like, the English Racing Association body that controls names. Uh, and the name was Hoof Hearted. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think another one uh, that actually somebody tweeted in and asked us to include on the show uh, was there's a there's a horse who's famously was named uh, Pot Eight O's, and it was actually so the horse's name well, was Potato. But when you read it, it just looks Potu because <laughs> it's just P O T followed by eight yep. O's, and apparently. <laughs> <laughs> so so the horse's official name is is pot hyphen eight hyphen o but but i think what happened uh, uh, the legend is that the 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 stable boy who was supposed to go in and write the name on the horse's stall or whatever the the owner was like oh its name is potato <laughs> and then it went in there and wrote pot o o o o o o o o so thank you uh, to our listener, Krishy, for sending that in on Twitter. That was great. Um, yeah. So I looked up the first speeding tickets um, given to automobiles. Um, so this one predates all of them, actually. But um, according to the, the website Jalopnik, um, one Walter Arnold of East Peckham, Kent, in Great Britain, on January 28th, 1896, was fined for speeding at eight miles an hour in a two-mile-an-hour zone. <laughs> and he was fined one shilling plus the costs of administering the ticket. <laughs> so How much was... is one shilling? Like, was that a lot? Yeah, I have no idea. I'm, I'm a scientist. I only do metric. I don't right. do these English units. <laughs> Pretend it doesn't exist. So that was the first automobile speeding ticket I could find. Um, a New York City cab driver named Jacob German was arrested for speeding on May 20th, 1899, for driving 12 miles an hour Whoa. on Lexington Avenue in Manhattan, uh, which if you did that now, you would just get killed. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I don't know what the speed limit was on Lexington Avenue at the time, but it, this was such a gross offense. He got jail time. Wow. Like, oh, he impounded his car and him. He should have been president. <laughs> it's a much better situation if you speed while you're president. Apparently. But so I give I give Jalopnik a lot of credit for figuring this out. They found the first man to get an actual speeding ticket, like the piece of paper that is your ticket. Um, and that was Harry Myers for going 12 miles an hour on West 3rd Street in Dayton, Ohio. Um, today, that's about $250 that he was charged um, for, for what his ticket was back in then. In those days, it was merely a shilling. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't matter. It's Monopoly money. <laughs> it's just, who knows how much it's worth? One day, it's worth $100. The next day, it's worth a toaster who knows <laughs> did you hear that pause that was where i was like name a random object processing but it may have been a bad time back then those seem like pretty harsh sentences but then i wouldn't recommend that you reckless drivers go to scandinavia because have you heard about their fining policies no so in Scandinavia, speeding tickets are proportional to your wealth. So the Finns oh, run a day fine system that's calculated on the basis of an offender's daily disposable income. And generally, it's your daily salary divided by two. Mm-hmm. And so they scale. They scale like the amount that you went over the speed limit to figure out how many day fines you've incurred. Um, so Switzerland uses a similar system, actually, and it holds the world record for the highest speeding ticket. Um, I just want you to guess what this speeding ticket was. So this would be daily disposable income. So let's just say it's right. on the order of your daily... So divided but, by but two, but also... Um, times the amount times that you... a factor based on how above oh. the speed limit yeah. you are. Yeah, so if you yes. went like 85 in a 75, like that's only like 10 miles over, so that would only be maybe one daily value. But, so a very rich person going very fast. Yeah, I'm going to say like 150 million. That was a weird noise. No, 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 wait, wait, hold on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> No, there's no way. There's no way that's right. <laughs> I was that, I was definitely thinking like yearly salary base. So I'm gonna say yeah, 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 I'm gonna daily. say like I'm gonna say like one point five to two million. I I'm gonna say fifty thousand. Okay, it's a couple order magnitudes there. Yeah. Giving it to Noah. Yeah. Oh. So it was it was a Swedish motorist in 2010 caught driving at 290 kilometers an hour. Wow. He was fined three uh fined three thousand six hundred Swiss francs per day for three hundred days. <laughs> Oh, so, oh, okay, hold God. on. So it wasn't one fine. 
It, I mean, it, they they meted it out as like well, yeah. So the, oh, the so he had to pay it for three hundred uh, days. They docked his pay yeah. for that many days. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. So what was the total? It, it converts to like one point one million dollars. Wow. Oh my God. Yeah. That's Absolutely absurd. <laughs> I mean, I mean it's no, great. it's good. It's good. <laughs> I'm because, glad that it happens. <laughs> because it, what I like about oh, it wow. is that if you're super, super rich and you're like, I want to give back to society, you can use this opportunity to go 150 miles an hour <laughs> down the highway. <laughs> um, or 180, which is what this actually converts what? to. Oh what car God. goes 180 miles an hour? Pro- you know what? Probably One a car a billionaire some... would own. That's <laughs> something that he could afford. <laughs> There we go. <laughs> Since this episode is actually just about grant facts, whatever, guys. Fine. I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, I'm about to drop some uh, grant facts rapid fire. Grant, grant facts. facts! <laughs> <laughs> Was that also not planned? Or... Heat wave. <laughs> I don't know if I believe you guys anymore. <laughs> All right. So, fact number one: his name is Ulysses S. Grant. But the S doesn't stand for anything. Oh. So his actual name, uh, the, the name that he was, or, so the name that he was born with, was actually Hiram Ulysses Grant. Mm-hmm. And although he was called Ulysses as a kid when he was growing up in Ohio, uh, he wasn't granted the S until uh, Ohio Congressman <laughs> Thomas Hamer accidentally wrote one in um, in his recommendation letter for West oh, Point. Interesting. Yeah. So the thought there is that he assumed that he, his middle name was his mother's maiden name of Simpson, which was common at the time. Uh, oh. Yeah. It still is. Oh, yeah. Well, exactly. It still is. Um, but point being, he got the S and tried to get rid of it and then just kind of embrace it after so a while. I was like, so yeah, it's not I'm Simpson. S. No. No. He wow, okay. just didn't I've, have I've a seen that written. Or, he didn't have that. Yeah. Oh, well, okay. But uh, what I like is that, so his his real name is Hiram Ulysses Grant. Yes. His initials are Hug. Aww. Oh, which works super well with my second rapid fire fact. <laughs> Ooh. Grant <laughs> facts. <laughs> Grant facts. Grant facts. <laughs> yeah, I like that better. Grant facts. This is good. Say the fact. I'm going. I'm going. Um, so my second grant fact is that uh, he and his wife Julia were the most adorable, loving couple ever. Like, oh man, there needs to be a romance movie about them like yesterday. But uh, to pick one of my favorite stories that I encountered about their relationship. So she first met him uh, through her brother, actually. Uh, she, her brother and Grant were friends when they were at West Point. Um, and Grant started visiting her family on the regular, just as her brother's friend. And on one of these visits, uh, her pet canary died. So he made the canary a small little coffin and Aww. summoned eight of his fellow officers to have an official avian funeral service were they pallbearers because canaries are not that big (laughs) they just each have like one index finger underneath the coffin just walking in a huddle (laughs) and my final grand fact grand facts crisp that was perfect um was that his second inaugural ball was a dumpster fire but frozen a frozen dumpster fire So it happened on the coldest March day on record for Washington at the time. Uh, With the wind gusts, the temperature was between negative 15 to negative 30 Fahrenheit. Um, The parade already sent a bunch of uh, cadets to the hospital because of frostbite. Um, And the musicians couldn't play their instruments because their breath like froze in their instruments and they couldn't play them. But then they proceeded to the ball, which was in this kind of wooden building that was just built for the occasion and not appropriately insulated and, you know, meant for an event happening in these conditions um and my favorite part of this is that ball goers uh while dancing around you know completely covered in their overcoats uh were displeased to find that canaries which were in cages above them as decoration started raining down from the ceiling oh, because they were frozen no. and falling off of their pedestals oh god oh my gosh that's yeah. horrible yes. <laughs> okay guys this week, my quiz is all going to be about words that were introduced to the English or American lexicon by U.S. presidents. Ooh, cool. Very right. nice. So I'm basically going to give you a question that's going to have some clues about who the president is, as well as a word that they popularized, coined, introduced, you know, some combination of those. Awesome. All right. I'm pretty kofif about this. <laughs> go fefe go fefe is it i don't know uh, never said it out loud no one knows <laughs> pronunciation hasn't been pinned down yet <laughs> all right that. question number one 
Which Whig Party president who died in office and who would be last on a list of presidents alphabetized by first name popularized the term first lady in his eulogy of Dolly Madison? Ooh, okay. Is it... I'm going to say it's Zachary Taylor. Zachary Taylor. Zachary Taylor. Yep. The only one with a Z. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So actually, in the early period of the United States, the president's wife was commonly referred to as the presidentress. (laughs) Which sucks. (laughs) First lady, so much better. Um, And so it was actually in a speech he gave eulogizing Dolly Madison in 1849, quote, she will never be forgotten because she was truly our first lady for a half century. So question two, which president who ended prohibition and sought to expand the Supreme Court popularized the word, quote, iffy to describe Supreme Court decisions he didn't approve of or of reporters' questions he wanted to dodge? So... I'm feeling that that's like Hoover era. I think so. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to remember when Prohibition was ended. Because it, it went in 1919, it came back in, I want to say like 31? Or did it last that long? Uh, I think it was earlier. I feel like it was mid to late 20s. I don't think it lasted all the way through the 20s. Uh, okay, so Harding died in 23. Okay. Um, and then you had Coolidge. Hmm. And then Hoover and was then the Hoover. early 30s. So maybe it was Coolidge. Okay. Mm, I'm leaning towards Coolidge. Okay. We're going to go Calvin Coolidge? Sure. It was Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Whoa. He so, undid re- Prohibition? Yes. Wait, and remember really? also, he tried to pack the Supreme Court. That was oh, the key that was the more AP U.S. history question. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah, he ended oh. Prohibition. And he also tried to, when the Supreme Court wasn't going his way, he tried to just add a bunch of new Supreme Court justices because nothing in the Constitution says there has to be exactly nine. So he was like... What if I had 10 more who do what I say? Um, <laughs> very much like a go big or go home kind of guy. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> how many terms can I have? All of them? Awesome. Do yeah. it. Yeah. How many justices? So, All of them? Awesome. <laughs> so it was apparently, he would very commonly disregard press questions he didn't like by saying, quote, that's an iffy question. Uh, and he's actually the first known person to use that term. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Question three. Which president hired a journalist to smear John Adams, his opponent in the election of 1800, by saying the following? Quote, a hideous hermaphroditical character, which has neither the force and firmness of a man, nor the gentleness and sensibility of a woman. And also, coincidentally, <laughs> invented the word to belittle. Oh. Wow. I think it was Jefferson. It's gotta be his vice president, right? Yeah. yeah. Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> right. Still um, blows my mind that was how that worked back then. Yeah. Like, uh, well, oh no, what oh, would you say? His, it, it's his vice president. John, oh, right. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, yes, so John Adams uh, was Thomas Jefferson's opponent in the election of 1800. Basically, he, it was one of like the first. Well, it was basically one of the first elections, wasn't it? But it was a. Vi- <laughs> yeah. It was one of. The, it was basically like the earliest example of like the super ugly American election, uh, with like all kinds of journalists either side writing awful things about either candidate. Wow. Um, yeah, so he invented the word uh, or the, uh, the verb to belittle. Thomas Jefferson believed that in order to create a distinct American identity, we needed to have new American words and phrases. So he created words like belittle and mammoth and stuff like that. Mm. Um, yeah, cool. he was really into mammoths, right? He was really into like archaeology yes. and, and like sloth specifically. Yeah. So yeah, really? we we, oh, all, we did we're, talk about that once. No, right? what we talked about was how much we like the podcast uh, "Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week." Oh, oh uh, yeah. where that was mentioned yeah. on, um, where they talk about how Thomas Jefferson basically to counteract this sort of like um, uh, a disrespect that Europeans had towards like the United States in America as being sort of like a degenerate uh, country that's not of sort of the old fancy world. Um, that Thomas Jefferson was like, I really hope that uh, Lewis and Clark are going to find really big sloths. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, yeah, so they tell that story very well. Question four. Which Kentucky-born president, famous for debating Stephen Douglas in a Senate campaign, invented the word sugarcoat? That's got to be Abe Lincoln. The oh, Lincoln-Douglas Lincoln debate. Yes, yeah. of course. You betcha. Yeah. It's Abraham Lincoln of everyone knows from high school debate or friends who mm. were in high school debate. Or maybe they don't have friends who were in high school debate. <laughs> um, there's a style of debate that, uh, like the all the nerds I knew in high school and me among them, uh, called LD or Lincoln Douglas debate. On July fourth, eighteen sixty one, in a message to Congress, Lincoln actually used the word sugarcoat to take aim at secessionists who claimed that their actions were constitutional. He said, "Quote with rebellion thus sugarcoated, 
They have been drugging the public mind of their section for more than 30 years, and until at length they have brought many good men to a willingness to take up arms against the government. Wow. Well, yeah. So wasn't sugarcoating that. No, not at all. He was throwing down. (laughs) Um, And actually, apparently, this position, the official government printer objected to Lincoln uh, that the use of the word sugarcoating or sugarcoated was beneath the, let's call it, um, dignity of the presidency because it was a more like common, a common term. Um, Mm. But Lincoln said, quote, the time will never come in this country when the people won't know exactly what sugarcoated means. Which I, I kind of like, as wow. he, he was not, like, he was this right. guy who was capable of soaring oratory, but also was like, how about we just use words people know? Yeah. <laughs> Question five. Which president who coined the words, quote, monotonously and lengthily was the second United States minister to France, succeeding Benjamin Franklin in 1790? So he must have been a fan of brevity. Yeah. Um, <laughs> ironically, though, those are two quite <laughs> long words. Okay, uh, Minister um, to France after Franklin, 1790. So we're looking at like Madison kind of era. Yeah. Well, so I know Jefferson was Minister to France, but we already answered him. I feel like most of my U.S. history knowledge comes from Hamilton. I'll admit it. I'm between Madison and Monroe, honestly, and I can't quite explain why. Okay. Let's say Madison. No. <gasps> You should have gone with the one person you know had been United States Minister to France, Thomas Jefferson! Oh. <laughs> what was... did I miss? <laughs> exactly. Thank you for that Hamilton quote. I was wondering where that came I thought it was going to come up when I said, the election of 1800. <laughs> That's in Hamilton, if you yep. guys... It All right, is. anyway. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, so he, among the 110 new words that he coined for the English language were monotonously and lengthily. So I thought I'd throw him in again because he definitely deserved a couple of the other words he invented. Um, He actually coined more words than any other president, but also imported many words from France. Mm. Question six. Which president who began the construction of the Panama Canal and who won a Nobel Peace Prize popularized the term the lunatic fringe? Thomas Jefferson. No. (laughs) (laughs) All right. It was put him in three times. (laughs) (laughs) It was a man, a planet canal. That was um, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, right? Yeah. Teddy nice. Roosevelt, indeed. Um, so he did coin the term the lunatic fringe. And the the place that he coined it is actually kind of funny. Because after he was president, he was reviewing an art show. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean, okay. So he was <laughs> reviewing the, the avant-garde armory show in 1913. I feel uh, like he wouldn't like it. Yeah, he didn't. Um, He said, the lunatic fringe was fully in evidence, especially in the rooms devoted to the cubists and the futurists or near impressionists. Um, And so then that word sort of crossed over because he had written it, you know, from the art world also to, you know, politics and just sort of general conversation. Um, Interestingly, he also coined bully pulpit, Mm -hmm. muckraker, loose cannon, and pack rat. He was big on compound words. Yeah. Sticking them together. (laughs) Yeah. So question seven. Which former senator from Illinois was the first president to use the term watchdog in a state of the union? I'm really bad at, like, home states. I am really bad at remembering presidents, except for ones that died in 20-year increments (laughs) at this point. Uh, (laughs) So is is Barack Obama from Chicago? He did that. I mean, oh, yeah. Yeah. So that would make sense. Barack Obama? Yes. The answer is Barack Obama. Nice. Um, Yeah, so so a lot... Some other observations from the Washington Post site where they uh, track like the first time a word was used in the State of the Union. Clinton was the first to say internet in 1999. Oh. Bush was the first to say mustard in 2003. Nice. Uh, he was talking about mustard gas, actually. <laughs> I just oh, thought it would be funny. Not nice. <laughs> it's like, when did that come up? I know. Oh. I just feel like you could believe that George Bush would be, just be talking about his favorite condiments, but it was he mustard was, like, gas. Cut the mustard. Like, so, and then, in addition, uh, Obama was the first president to say Instagram in a state of the union. Wow. And Trump was the first to say kissing. Hmm. <laughs> Um, and finally yeah finally question eight which u.s president whose vice president was tried for murder is credited with introducing the word pedicure bit of left turn there (laughs) okay (laughs) hang in there guys vice president was tried for murder yes and introduced the word pedicure to american english Hmm. wow yeah that's a lot i just can't <laughs> I have no idea how old the word pedicure is, but I think it's older than I think. 
And yeah, probably it had a different meaning than what it has today, would be my guess. And I'm betting it was used in a derogatory sense. I'll tell you, it's the same <laughs> meaning as it was today. It's introdu- Really? It was when it was introduced to American English, the word pedicure. Like going to the salon, getting your nails done? Basically. Really? Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Oh, that doesn't help. Maybe someone who spent some time in France... Was it Thomas Jefferson? Thomas Jefferson? It was Thomas Jefferson. Are you Jefferson. kidding me? <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes. Thomas Jefferson also introduced the word pedicure to American English uh, from his years of living in Paris. And was George, um, George Clinton was his vice president? Aaron Burr. Oh, Aaron Burr, Burr God sir. God damn it. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Who <laughs> was tried for murder. Um, yeah, and this is pedicure, meaning uh, the care of feet, toes, and toenails. Yeah. Hmm. And also, really, really pleasingly... Um, Thomas Jefferson also introduced the word neologize, which means to create new words. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. (laughs) What is this I'm doing? Should come up with a word for that too. Oh yeah, there we go. (laughs) That's awesome. All right. Well, that's my quiz. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you like our podcast, please give us five stars and leave us a nice review. And while you're at it, tell a friend about us and then bring that friend to our live show at Caveat on New York's Lower East Side on Monday, April 29th at 9 p.m. You can find more information about the show and how to get tickets on Instagram and Twitter at Fax Machine Pod, on Facebook at Fax Machine Podcast, and on our website, FaxMachinePodcast.com. You can find me on social media at Arcs and Sciences. Emily? At underscore E.M. Costa. And Rob? At Whiteboard Rob. And our producer, AC, at The Cosmic ACA. Fax Machine is hosted and written by Noah Guyberson, Emily Costa, and Rob Frawley, and was edited by Noah Guyberson. Production and theme music by AC Antonelli. And our logo was designed by Mike Zola. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Actually, yeah, how about, yeah. let me say like a random sentence beforehand, yeah, yeah, and that yeah. way we, you, you can use like the natural pause in my speaking. Love it. So I'm talking, I'm starting a sentence that will transition to the next one, and three, two, one, I'm talking, here I go, <clears throat> no, I stopped now, that was bad. Uh, talking, 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 auxiliary, auxiliary thoughts, grant, auxiliary <laughs> This is going really well. <laughs> should not be difficult. <laughs> You're like this is a great idea. I think I just we just I talk. think we just cut there, guys. I right? I just, <laughs> That's definitely I think a good I ending. Like broke somehow. I'm going back. All right.